Who is Christ? It's a good question, like I said, to ask before. Um, and we're, basically, it's a journey through Mark, all right? And we're, we're on uh, chapter 7 right now, ending up the last few verses, uh, Mark 7, 31 through 37. And it's an it's a interesting thing that we've seen unfold here, but I want to talk first uh, about uh, choosing an audience. Um, very important thing because it's what we're going to discuss today, this choice of audience that we have. And we have a choice as we go through life in the audience that we choose. And I, if you would, just go with me for a quick second in your mind. And we're rolling up to Walmart right now. Thomas just got excited. Um, we're going to Walmart. We're pulling into Walmart. You guys see it? We're there. Every Walmart's pretty much the same. It's like a, just a, there it is. You're like, I feel at home, okay? Um, has anybody ever gone to Walmart in another city? Just to feel like, yeah, this is normal, okay? I have. I'm not going to lie. All right? Sam's, yeah, my dad would go to Sam's. All right, and so we're at Walmart. We've just been greeted by the nice person at the, the front breezeway. You know, you open the door and that fan comes on. And you're like, welcome, okay? And she's like, hey, how are you? Doing great. Grab a cart. Here we go. We're shopping. We take, in our Walmart, we take a right and we go down by the registers. I'm talking about the Mulberry Mall, okay? Uh, we go down. And we go, that's Walmart. For those that don't, Mulberry has got a mall. It's called Walmart. Okay. And so we go and we take a right and we see this lady. You guys with me? And we see this lady. She's about 30 something and she is just laying in to her five year old verbally. Okay. I know if you've been to Walmart, you've seen this before. Let's not joke around. <laughs> let's, let's be serious, okay? And so, if, and so there, there this is happening. And, and whether she's been taught this through her family or whether this is just the way that she handles things, she is making a choice of audience. She is choosing to do this to her five-year-old in front of whoever is there. And she doesn't care if anybody's paying attention. And so maybe you've, maybe you've done this. I know that, I mean, speaking for myself, I never have, but Jen and I have never argued in front of the kids. And I've never started that argument. I'll just say that, okay? Um, that's completely untrue, okay? So maybe you've argued in front of the kids, and maybe that's like, Man, that's a, you think immediately afterwards, that's a really good leadership lesson for them. That's really good. That was really good, Andy. Um, and so, but we chose in that moment, I chose the audience. And let me just say that I'm honestly the one that's mostly guilty of that, okay? Because uh, on the Enneagram, I'm a seven. I'm an eight, wing seven. And it says about me, if you've never taken the Enneagram test, it says about me that I can start an argument in an empty house. Okay? I have to argue with that. All right. And so, but we do, we choose our audience. We choose our audience. And sometimes if you're like me, we should probably choose more wisely. 
And so we recall, if you will, as we, as we went through chapter 7, um, Jesus is going to deal with this Gentile woman who asked for a crumb from the table, and he says, okay, I'll give you the crumb. And in saying that to a Gentile woman, he is saying that the kingdom of God is not just for Jewish people, but it's going to be for everyone that is occupying planet earth. And so he is in Gentile. Jesus is in Gentile, non-Jewish territory right now as we continue on chapter 7. And we see that he is going to open up his grace and mercy of the kingdom to everyone. So as we pick up in verse 31 of chapter 7, it says this, Jesus left Tyre and went up to Sidon before going back to the Sea of Galilee and the region of the Ten Towns. A deaf man with a speech impediment was also was brought to him, and the people begged Jesus to lay his hands on the man to heal him. Jesus led him away from the crowd so that they could be alone. He put his fingers in the man's ears, and then spitting on his own fingers, he touched the man's tongue. Looking up to heaven, he sighed. And said, Ephatha. Sorry, geez. I, you know, I practiced that for so long and then I just ruined it. Okay? Which means be opened. Instantly, the man could hear perfectly, his tongue was freed, and he could speak plainly. In verse 36, it says, Jesus told the crowd not to tell anyone, but the more that he told them not to, the more they spread the news. They were completely amazed, and again and again, everything, they said this, everything he does is wonderful. He makes deaf hear and gives speech to those who cannot speak. And so we see in this passage that Jesus had to make the same kind of decision that we talked about previously. He had to choose his audience. And when he chooses this, we see that Jesus is not in the game of self-promotion, but he's in the game of letting God work in him. He is God. He says a lot in this miracle, all right? Even though it's a few short verses, he, A, he's not going to self-promote. Why doesn't he need to self-promote? It's because he's already promoted. And I think we can learn a lesson from that. That God will speak through us and use us, and we're not going to need advertisement to do that. Because I believe that when the kingdom comes, there's no other ad that needs to take place. Because we're going to see lives changed. We're going to see transformation in our neighborhood. We're going to see transformation in our own lives and then we're going to see that the kingdom is going to come and that every person that's involved is an intricate part of what we're doing, all right? And so it doesn't mean that every person is going to choose to be an intricate part. They have the ability, though, to be an intricate part of what we're doing. Um, but for me, I don't know about you guys, I get a little stuck here in the middle of the passage when he pops his ears, does that? Like, can't you hear that like thing? For me, it's like that. Pops the ears, and then he's like, yeah, and slaps his tongue. And I'm like, what 
is that? All right, but again, context is everything, right? All right, what does it say before? They begged him to lay his hands on the man. Healing back in the day was a hands-on deal, okay? It wasn't like, everybody put your hands towards the front. It was like, everybody get up here, let's put some hands, all right, and let's lay some hands on this dude. So he does this. I don't, I don't know, okay? He did it, though, all right? And so he sticks his hands in his ears, and then he, he then puts his spit on his tongue, and the man can then hear, and then the man can speak. And what we see here, this is what we're, we're seeing, the bigger picture here is Jesus is in this moment, He is showing, hey, that I am God, okay? This is before crucifixion. This is before resurrection. This is before the resurrection power. This is before the dissension of the Holy Spirit onto the people. This is Jesus saying, I am God, because what they say actually echoes scriptures. If we see that the crowd says in 37 that they were completely amazed and said again and again, everything he does is wonderful. You can also say everything he has done is good. And then he says, he even makes the deaf hear and gives speech to those who cannot speak. And these are echoes of scriptures from the Old Testament. If we look in Genesis 1.31, God saw what he made and it was very good. And then they're going to echo Isaiah 35.5-6. It says, then... Will the eyes of the blind be opened and the ears of the deaf unstopped? Then the lame leap will leap and the mute tongue will shout for joy. This is a fulfillment of what has been said about the coming Messiah. And this is Jesus fulfilling what has been said in the Old Testament about him. Now we see in this passage, and I don't want to take, I don't want to just go off crazy here, but I do want to say this, that we see in this passage, this particular passage, we see a physical, uh, we see physical deafness, we see physically he cannot speak, he's, he's mute and cannot speak, and so there's also at the same time aligning, there's spiritual deafness and spiritual muteness that is happening even among his own disciples because we hear Jesus repetitively say what if you have ears to hear listen right but they aren't hearing they're hearing but they're not hearing so everybody we get that right you guys could be hearing me today but you might not be hearing me today in your heart and, and so I wonder if today we have people that are spiritually deaf. And sometimes I can answer that question very well that we do have people that are spiritual deaf that call themselves followers of Christ because there's sometimes when I look in the mirror, I'm that person. I would like to report to you that 100% of the time I am hearing and I am active in what God is, is telling me to do, but I'm going to disappoint you, I'm not, all right? 
And so I think that we're probably in the same club together. And we're not a disappointment to God because of that. We're in process. And so I think the heart behind it is, God, I want to hear you. And not only do I want to hear you, but then I want to tell about you. Because the question that begs to be asked in this moment of spiritual deafness is this. The man in this physical state, if he could not hear, then guess what? He couldn't speak. And it's just like us, if we can't hear what God is saying, then how are we supposed to relay a message that we can't hear? And so it's important when, he, when Jesus says, if you have ears, listen. And don't just listen to 35 podcasts about leadership during the week or sermons that are super better than mine, all right? But listen to stuff and then hear it, take it in, and then we have to do something with it. There's an imperative there that says we have to do something with it. Are we just a collection of data? Are we hard drives that we're trying to fill up with information that is good, but nothing ever gets out? And I don't know about you, but I'm not satisfied with that. Do I want to know more? Yes, I want to know more. But then I've got to do something about it or I'm just a knowing person who knows a lot but doesn't do anything with it. And so it's impossible for us to share our faith if we don't start hearing from God. And this begs another question then, how do I hear from God? How many of you maybe in this room have asked that question or have been asked that question? Anyone? Me? Okay. Or you hear this statement maybe, God never speaks to me. And my reply is simple for people. How do I hear from God or God never speaks to me? It's real simple. Read the Word of God. Now, for some, this reply might seem very just brush off and just go read the Word of God. But it's not. Because what do we believe about the Word of God is very important to the next step that we're going to talk about is this. Do we believe that the Word of God is just uh, several different genres of writing Uh, We believe that it's 66 books, and we believe that there's a New and Old Testament, and Jesus was kind of the the dividing line there in those testaments, and and we believe that there's poetry, and there's wisdom, and there's prophets, and there's law, and there's history in there, and there's New Testament, and epistles, and revelation. We believe all that, and all that is true about what the Word of God is, but it's not an end to what it is. If the book is just a historical document like anything else that's been sold more than any other book in the world, that's great, but what is it doing and what does it matter to us right now? Am I just reading a history book? 
Or am I reading something that's alive? And I heard in a class that I'm taking right now, the story of the kingdom is super good class. And it talks about just that, the story of the kingdom. And it is the best description that I've ever heard in my life about what the Bible is. And I hope that um, when you hear this, that you're intrigued by it, that you are drawn then to the Bible, that the Bible is just more than a book to read. It's, it's more than a plan that you should be on on your version app, the Bible in 365, or whatever you want to do. Those are good things. And I encourage every one of you to be in it every day. But if we are just reading it so that I can have my quiet time for the day, and I'm not going to do anything with it, then we have to wonder what exactly we're doing. So here's the description that I just found compelling. And I'm stealing it straight from the dude, okay? So don't feel like I wrote it. I'm not this smart, all right? Matter of fact, I dumbed it down a little bit for myself. All right, so he says this. The description of the Bible is a space, a curated space, like a museum or a cathedral. It's an image for explaining Scripture as a literary artifact composed over the span of millennia and containing genres as different from one another as paintings to sculptures to tapestries. In in a well-curated space, the artifacts will talk to one another, like a Renaissance painting riffing on a scripture, or I'm sorry, a sculpture from ancient times. The point in the explanation is to insist what scripture is not. It is not a rule book. It is not a history book. It is not a dead ancient document. Scripture may function as any number of these things at different times for different people, but scripture is not by nature any of these things. Then if Scripture is like Westminster or the Louvre, if the book is a building, we'd have to insist that when we walk the halls and gaze upon its beauty, we are not alone. There is another who walks these halls who is responsible not just for the artworks, but for the artists themselves. Not just the walls, but the foundations. This other haunts this place because he knows it intimately. In a sense, he built it. And he inhabits it as a place to encounter us. So whether in the quiet corners or magnificent vaulted expanses, he is the building's theme. It testifies to him. And we do well as often as we can to see the pictures on the wall whisper his name. When after hours with your nose pressed right up against a masterpiece, trying to discern which hand added precisely which brush stroke, you start to sense a presence over your shoulder and you realize the one testified in this text is present to you. When you have that experience, it's like staring at a painting of a man wrestling a lion only to realize nearly too late that the lion itself is lurking in the corner behind you. 
Indeed, it sometimes is alarming experience and it's almost always a disquieting one. But it is ultimately a good experience and it's exactly the kind of experience in which I hope you all will come to know the Bible as it truly is, a place of encounter with the living God. When I heard that, I was like, dude, that is stinking awesome, all right? Because if we look at the Bible rather than an assignment book that we go through and we check off and we realize that we're going to step into a space where we are going to encounter the living God because throughout here, from page one to the end of Revelation, It is pointing to one person, and that is Jesus Christ. Every page that you turn, every story that you read is pointing to the one who saved us from ourselves. And I'm wondering this morning if we could take off those figurative earplugs that we might not have that we may have in and that we could then start reading the word of God as if we could hear him talking to us as we walk through the space and as he guides us through the very thing that he created and I wonder then as we hear if then we could get to the point where we could speak to other people about what we're hearing in this Word of God, this, this Word of God that is, is changing us. And if you've ever been to an art museum or you enjoy art, you understand why people sometimes sit there for hours and gaze at a painting because it has drawn them in. There's nothing wrong with them. They are just overwhelmed by what they are seeing Or if you've ever seen somebody listen to music and you see goosebumps appear on their neck or their arms or you see tears start to come down their face and because they understand that behind what they're hearing is an artist and an art form that is, is compelling them to think, that is moving them deep within. And if we interact with Scripture like that, we begin to see that this document is not just a placeholder on our dresser, but it is alive and it is a well in us. And we begin to be able to connect points of Scripture where, wow, that sounds like this back here. Oh my goodness, it is. Isaiah 53, whoa! That's Jesus. And we begin to say, wow, okay, Genesis, you, you, Jesus, you were there. Because when we talk about that and we connect Genesis 1 with John 1, we see, whoa, you knew what this was about. You knew who you were coming for. You knew what you were doing. And we start to connect these things like we looked at today, Isaiah 35. The deaf will hear. The mute will shout for joy. 
And there's this fulfillment that happens. And here's what the deal is. It didn't stop here that we get to be a continuation of the story that God is writing. And He's writing it on our hearts. And He's writing it for that we could be living epistles. Are you going to do everything right? Let me just go ahead and let you down now. No, you're not going to do everything right. You're going to screw up. There's going to be hard stuff that you walk through, but you're walking through it with that person that is carrying you through those situations because you can't do it on your own. None of us can. And so what I would encourage you with this morning is begin to know that curator, that other that's over your shoulder. Begin to know who that person is. And you might say, how do I do that? I encourage you with this. Open up the Bible. Don't do it alone. Ask questions to people. And those people are going to hit you up sometimes and say, I have no clue what that means. And you guys are going to dig through that together. And there's some stuff where on this side of eternity, you're not going to figure it out. Okay? Revelation. I don't know. Probably not going to figure that out. I know I'm not, right? There's stuff that's said where you're like, what does that mean? And then we can go into, what does it mean? I encourage you, though, to start digging that soil together and alone. Here's what I'm convinced of. If a community is going to see transformation, then it has to start with followers of Christ that are not only knowledgeable of the Scriptures, but they're living it out. And I'm going to beg with you this morning that I believe the second part is the most important part. Because you can be so full of knowledge, but if you don't have the second part, it doesn't matter. So I want Lakeland Vineyard, I want this community, I want the people in this community to experience that space where they meet with the living God in the middle of what is going on in their lives. That it's a space that we feel like maybe, you know what, I can't do today if I don't go to that space. And many of us are there, right? How many of you have answered someone this week, how are you doing? I'm tired. Anybody? What are you doing to rest? Nothing. I'm going on and I'm doing something else. Okay? Rest well when you have a chance to rest well. It's okay to rest. Yeah, Carlos? What did you say, 17? 11? 11? 11 days straight of working. That dude needs a rest. 
For real. Now, let me ask this question. Has anybody ever felt guilty for resting? Has you felt guilty for saying no? I can't do that. Don't. Yeah. Don't. And don't get in a perpetual habit of always saying no to people. You know, like, no, I'm in my hammock today. Dude, you've been in your hammock for 11 days now. Um, okay? But the point being is this, that, that we have got to make an effort to meet with the one that gives us the strength to carry on. You know, I always used to think, well, quiet times in the morning, that's not for me. I, I just try it. Try it. See if that makes your day any different. Uh, well, I have to get up at 4. Well, I mean, what's 3.30 then? I mean, I mean, honestly, like, what's 3.45? I mean, what's, what's 3.55? I believe this, that in, in five minutes of resting in the presence of God, that it, it can change you. You know, uh, I'm just not as disciplined as so-and-so. They spend an hour in quiet. Well, it's not... Uh, God didn't design that to be a competitive thing. You know, I don't text my friends every morning and be like, how many minutes you put in? All right? Text the elders every day. How many minutes a day? Hmm, okay. Just wondering. Okay, I noticed your attitude lately. Um, no, but you think about it. What quality over quantity because for some of us, uh, maybe new moms, you know, you're going bananas, maybe, right? Moms, you ever feel that way? Okay, and you're like, when do I have a half an hour to carve out? I don't. You have five minutes. You have five minutes. And so I just encourage you, let's, let's take out those those figurative earplugs, and let's start hearing what God has to say that He can speak into our hearts so that those will be changed. Because I am just convinced that if our hearts are not changed, our community will not be changed, called Lakeland Vineyard, and Lakeland Vineyard will not be a part of transformation then. It's got to start with the people, because who's the church? We are, right? Every one of us. So if the church is not well, then how could we possibly share what Jesus would have us to do? And let me just encourage you that there are some people that are well. I mean, you guys are doing fantastic. I don't mean to, I don't want to come across like I'm berating us. I'm just challenging us to say, what? let's take a look, right? We should constantly be looking at what we're doing. And we should constantly be saying, how can I potentially do this better? How can I run harder after God?